I'm going to read in a few moments from Romans 1. I love bookshops. I could spend hours in them, just meandering around the shelves and pulling books that catch my fancy off the shelves and browsing for a while, you know, reading the back of the book to see what others have said about it, even just reading snippets from it, looking through the chapter list and is there something that catches my fancy and I will turn to that chapter and I will read just maybe two or three paragraphs from it. If Liz and I were to go into town together, I'd be happy how much money she spent. It wouldn't bother me as long as I could be in a bookshop browsing. Don't take that seriously enough, all right? Um, but yeah, I could be in there ages and ages. One of the sections I do enjoy, I, I've been abroad a few times, we've been abroad as a family, uh, to places like New Zealand and Australia, and when we would go into places like that, I would go in and I'd browse the shelves in the travel section and look at the books of the place I was going to, New Zealand or Australia or wherever it happens to be. And it's just interesting, isn't it, to flick through and read other people's experience, just bits and pieces out of it, so that you know sort of what, what you're going to and what it's going to be like, or at least get a, some form of understanding about what it's like. I'm not really sure who wrote that all roads lead to Rome, but they, I think, must have known something about Rome. Not just because it was, uh, uh, for want of a better uh, phrase, the center of, you know, uh, a dynasty that was spreading itself out across the world. But there was something about Rome itself which attracted people. Here's what one person wrote about it. In fact, the truth is, you know, that, that those travel books, they're not a new phenomenon that has only been around maybe for the last two or three hundred years. People have always written down historical documents and described things. And so this is how one person wrote about Rome. It is not without good reason that God, small g, and men chase this place to build our city. These hills with their pure air this convenient river by which crops may be floated down from the interior and foreign commodities brought up. A sea handy to our needs but far enough away to guard us from foreign fleets. Our situation in the very centre of Italy. All these advantages shape this most favoured of sights into a city destined for glory. Rome even today, when you look at some of the monuments in Rome, must have been a sight to behold. And yet when Paul was on his way to Rome, his interest in getting there was not to go on a tourist attraction round the city. He only had one thing in mind, and his motivation was to share the gospel in Romans 1, it says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, 
in order that I might reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul was motivated purely by his calling. And if you remember the last time I spoke I I looked at the three things at the beginning of this uh, letter to the Romans where he refers to himself as a servant or a slave of Jesus, that he was called to be an apostle and had been set apart for the gospel. And therefore, that was Paul's motivation for going without a shadow of a doubt. The last time I spoke, I made this statement. I said, whilst you will either love Paul You might hate Paul or possibly be offended by Paul, right? I think that we can also, if we've got eyes to see, we can see someone who is, number one, deeply thankful because of God's grace. In that first part of chapter one, Paul, to me, comes over as deeply thankful because of God's grace. Despite that people would say that Paul was arrogant, I actually think he demonstrates real humility in this first chapter, recognizing that Jesus is the source of everything. And he talks in verse five about through whom, let me just find it, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Paul recognized this was not just an intellectual pursuit And he wasn't even relying on the fact that he himself was quite academic, quite learned. He recognized that the source of what he was doing came from outside of himself. He was prayerful. He actually says to them, I pray for those who are in Rome always when I give prayers. He showed love for I long to come. You don't long to go just on some exercise, but there is a desire to go because of the people who are there. And if you were to turn to the end of the book of Romans, and in chapter 16, go to some of the last uh, verses in there, you will find that there's a list of uh, over 20 people who are his companions and friends. No other list in the whole of Scripture in what Paul wrote, lists so many people. Plus, he was intentional. He'd set his mind to go. So whatever your thoughts of Paul are today, I think that Paul is often misunderstood. I think often that Paul is misquoted as a misogynist and other things, a sin-hater in terms of he doesn't just hate sin, he hates sinners And yet, I actually don't think Paul is like that at all. So what I'm asking you today is, if you're starting with a reticence about him, if you're starting because you've already been offended by him in the past, I'm asking you to be prepared to take a fresh look at who he is and what he says, rather than write him off before we start. I will warn you, however, this chapter 
right now that we're going to look at, I'm actually going to read a shorter version of it. I'm going to start at 16, Martin, and just read to the end. Um, is a chapter that has a tendency to cause offence in our 21st century world. But I want you to stick with me this morning and not write off what I'm about to say because you've already decided you don't like what it is. So let's read together. I'm going to read from 16. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation in everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in all things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For all they, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Now that is an important verse of scripture for you to take hold of before I read this next part. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I want to talk to you about the glorious gospel. But before I do that, I want to talk to you about sin. And I want to make it clear this morning that I am not addressing just one sin here in terms of I'm not just going to address what 
so often church will focus on, which is what church would say was sexual sin. Because I find it interesting that even though there are statements about the dishonoring of bodies, one with another, there is also a whole list of other things there that all of us can be guilty of from time to time. And therefore, we need to be careful before we start picking on a specific sin in order to prove a point. And so I don't intend to go into the issues about Christian sexuality and the sexual ethics of Christianity. I'm not intending to get into that this morning, but I do want to talk to you about how sin happens. And then I want to talk to you about the glorious gospel. So he starts this passage, this bit of the passage we've read, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What becomes apparent to me in that last part of the passage that we read together is, it suggests to me that the real issue and the root of sin is idolatry. And I don't mean just worshipping little statues, all right? Or creation itself. But it is where we allow anything in our lives to become higher and more important than God himself. And therefore the root of sin is actually idolatry. It is where we place ourselves in the center of our world and what we want and how we want to live and how we want to act becomes the paramount driving force in our lives. And you will know this morning whether or not you do that because are there things in your life, if you've ever played top trumps or trumps with playing cards, you will know you, you can trump um, a person's uh, attack or um, card hand by using trump cards, all right? And therefore, wherever we as people place something which is unsurrendered and unwilling to be surrendered to God, then we are trumping him. We are saying to him, I can go this far, but if you ask that, I am going to call, if you like, my escape clause. I'm not going that far. And I'm going to say something this morning which I actually think is quite frightening for most of us. In fact, all of us it should be. Because I believe that all of us wrestle from time to time with things that we find hard to let go of. The reality for me is that if we continually find ourselves in a place where we will not surrender something to God, then we are placing ourselves outside of the covering of the Almighty. And therefore, we need to be careful. You see, it doesn't matter where you're at. 
The, the reality is God, people will say to you they don't believe in God. And I know that that is their entire right. If that's what they want to say, that's absolutely they're right, but this passage tells us that from the beginning of time, creation has paid, um, has made God known. And if you think about it, that's logical at so a base level. We've got so many theories. People spend millions and billions of pounds trying to prove the the, the beginnings of the universe. How did it take place? And there's a thing called first cause. And it matters not which um, theory that you, um, you take, you always come back to a place where you are left with a question. Unless there is a God. And then, of course, you get the question, well, who made God? Who made God? Well, God isn't God if he's made by someone else. God is. I am. Present, continuous, ongoing, always. That is how he showed himself to Moses. That is how he presented himself to the slaves in Egypt. I am. No beginning, no end. He is. And the interesting thing for me is that when you read, well, I mean, I, can't, I never can remember, I can't even pronounce the name. What's that thing in Switzerland, uh, the Hadron or Haldron? Collider, yeah. I've got kaleidoscope in my head, which is definitely not what it is. But there they are trying to prove that something can come from nothing, that it can produce something. As yet, unless they add something to it, it doesn't happen. But for me, you will always come back to the fact that you've got a hole in your theory unless you're prepared to place God there. The idea of first cause is this. I think it was Aquinas who um, talked about first cause, that to everything that takes place, there is a cause. There is something that has made that happen. And therefore, for me, a lot of the time we're trying to suppress the truth. We don't want to believe in a God because the moment you believe in a God, you end up in a place where you have to respond to him. And responding to God, you might not wish to do. And so what happens in my, you know, I think is that we try and push God, not just to the margins, but out altogether. We push him away altogether. We try and silence any statements about God. And we end up with issues. It says here that not only they became, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, the more we pursue something other than God, 
And I, by the way, I am not saying there are not good things that have happened through science and all the rest of it. I'm not saying that. Medicine and different things, that's not what I'm saying. But when we cut God out of the picture, we end up pursuing something which takes us towards blindness rather than sight. And so idolatry happens. We make ourselves the centre of the universe. I read something recently, and I'm going to be quite honest, I, I don't know how accurate it was, but it was on a news um, site. But they talked about how somehow that scientists had been able to produce an embryo outside of the body and not using an egg and sperm. I don't, I, but I thought to myself, whether that's true or not, the fact that someone is trying to do that, is that not the height of humanity wanting to be God? If that is truthfully being done, or attempted even, is that not the height of humanity trying to be God. And so what we find is idolatry takes us down a path where we end up moving away from God. And the thing for me, it is the suppression of truth. That is the thing. I'm... It says in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. The result of that is you exchange the worship of God or the truth about God for a lie and the creature becomes the one who is worshipped. Not by us all bowing down, but by us bowing our knee to ourselves and living how we want. Now when you look at the list there, and you look at some of the things, haughty, boastful, disobedient to parents, tell me, who's not been disobedient to their parent at some point in their life? Foolish, faithless, truthless, ever told a lie. These things are unrighteous. And these things come out of exchanging the truth of God for a lie and putting ourselves at the center of things. Why do we lie? More often than not, it's to save ourselves. We, we do it to protect ourselves. We become the center of who we are, of, of, of our universe. And so you might ask yourself the question, well, if that's the case, do you remember the disciples once said to Jesus, well then, who can be saved? <laughs> who can be saved? Well, there is a glorious gospel that Paul talks about here. So moving backwards then, into the beginning you have the form of the gospel, you have the content of the gospel and the power of God. Three things. And what's the time? I'll do at least one of them. 
all right, the form of the gospel. The form of the gospel so often for us is good advice. That's how we would describe it. We, we would never actually use that phrase, but that's how we treat it. The gospel that Jesus came to bring is just a set of good advice. And so what that will lead us to is to try and be very moral people. And there's nothing wrong with being moral, all right? The problem is that what is talked about as the gospel here, the word gospel does not mean moral. It doesn't mean good advice. And believe it or not, it means a lot more than just forgiveness of sins. The gospel actually has with it, it's the word evangelion, of which angelion or angeloi is the root word, all right? And that root word means herald. And the overall idea is that this is good, joyful news. It is something which is absolutely amazing. It's like declaring what you might do when, um, as a couple, you might have given birth to your first child and you're so excited, you just cannot wait to tell everybody about this birth of this child that has just taken place. It is a pronouncement that there is a change. Something has happened. I don't know how many of you follow closely when Queen Elizabeth died after her funeral the build-up to the pronouncement of King Charles becoming King Charles III, or Prince Charles as he was before the pronouncement. But there came this point at St. James's Palace where this guy walks out onto a balcony and there's this fanfare of trumpets and there are, what do you call them? The household, it wasn't the household cavalry, what's the ones with the bearskins on their head? Somebody remind me. Guardsmen. Scots guards. So there's this group of Scots guards there and then there's a barrier and there's loads of people and there's this, this balcony and all these people come out, fanfare, and then this guy, and I, I can never remember his name, David Vines, the garter king of arms as they call him, came out and he read the public proclamation that Prince Charles was now King Charles III. And there was all this stuff that went on where they... There was cheers from the crowd, you know, the crowd was shouting hip hip hooray and, you know, the guardsmen end up taking off their bear skins and putting them on the floor and giving three cheers to the new king. There was this, this proclamation that something had changed. Queen Elizabeth, who they gave honour to for her reign, had been replaced by the new king. And the evangel, if you like, the gospel is good news. Why is it good news? Because there has been a change. And it's outside of ourselves. It's not within us. It's actually outside of us. God has done something in the world. God has changed something in the world. Jesus came as God's son and he died on a cross and shed his blood. What we've remembered through communion this morning 
And through that, sin has been dealt with. In Colossians, um, it says something like this. This isn't a direct quote. But having nailed um, stuff to the cross, the principalities and powers to the cross, you know, it was done. It was finished. Christ's pronouncement, it is finished. There was a proclamation that change had taken place. Jesus himself was the good news. Jesus himself is the good news for us. Because without him, we don't stand a chance to meet the righteous requirements that God has. And yet, because Jesus came, because he came, the very thing that kept us separated from God, we have the opportunity to have it removed and allow us to come into his presence. So the form of the gospel is a declaration that something has changed. It is something that has changed. I want to ask you this morning, here's a test for you. Is the gospel something about you or something that God has done for you? When you are really looking at your life and you are talking to God, is the gospel something about you or is it something God has done for you? How do your prayers go? Are your prayers more me-focused than God-focused? Now, I know we all have things that we take before God, and that's fine. But the reality is, the gospel to you, are you trying to be a good Christian? Or has God made you? righteous in his sight do you rely on yourself or are you relying on him there is only one way and that's to rely on him because Old Testament you know all our best works are just like filthy rags it doesn't matter our righteousness is as filthy rags I think the um Closest definition to that is a menstrual cloth. It is as dirty rags, they say. That's when we try and please God and earn our way. We would never say we would earn. If I asked you to share with me the gospel, I am sure you would share with me a version of the gospel. There would be truth within it. But does it tell people that this is nothing you can do for yourself. This is only something God can do for you. That is seriously important. In Isaiah 64, 6, it says, we've all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift, the gift of God, 
not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so when we look at the end of this chapter and we see all this stuff, which is the result of us going in a direction against God, and you look at some of those things and you think, there's no way, I am going to be, I'm, I'm done, I'm screwed. The truth is, you are not. Because Jesus did it all. Jesus paid the price. Jesus paid the price. There is a penalty for us living to ourselves, putting ourselves, the creature, in place of the creator. And I know it's unpopular because we probably like to think that in the end everybody will go to heaven because God is a God of love but God is also a God of justice. We all have the opportunity. The decision is ours whether we decide to surrender to him and put our faith and trust in him. And so I'm going to end there, I think. Um, but I just want to encourage you. Why is this good news? I'll just list you some of the good news that I wrote at the end here. I can find it. The good news is that when we stop relying on ourselves and put our faith in the work of Jesus on the cross and we don't rely on ourselves, certain things happen. I will have assurance of salvation and acceptance. I will have the freedom to acknowledge without fear what I already know, which is I miss the mark. You see, the great thing about the gospel is it's a gospel of grace. The gospel of grace is unmerited favor. Where grace leads, however, is this. Grace leads us towards a place where we will look to become an eternal, as this is as um, Derek Prince wrote, we are to be an eternal demonstration of God's grace to the entire universe. God's grace is amazing because he has done what is necessary to pay the price for our sinfulness. God's grace is unmerited. We receive his mercy, which is we get what we don't deserve. God's mercy is given to us and we get to live as sons and daughters of the living God. What happens is we get taken on a pathway of sanctification, the pathway of being made holy, changed and transformed into the likeness of God you know whether or not you are on that journey because when you sin you will know and should know quicker that you've sinned than you did previously and therefore you can't even get away with sin for yourself you might want to pray God I'll try and do better but then you are not relying on the gift of God. I'm not saying we can just live how we like. 
I'm not saying that. But we don't have to be condemned. It says in Romans 6.14, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. Again, that does not excuse us at all to live how we like. But I am relying on Jesus. I already know I'm a sinner. I already know I miss the mark. I know that if I'm relying on myself, I can have no assurance, no peace, no sense of acceptance by God. But if I take hold of Jesus and what he did for me on Calvary, then I can have assurance. I can have peace. I can know that I am accepted. I can know that I am loved. I can know that on that day I will be with him. If he returns before I die, I will be with that final call. I know that if I die before that final call, I know, I know that I am going to be with him. That's why Paul could say, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. He was in a win-win situation, even though outwardly sometimes it probably looked different to that. Let's pray. Father God, I just want to ask you today that you will help us, Father, grasp. Lord, to be honest with you, I don't, I, 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 trying to hold on to some of these things is not the easiest thing in the world. Lord, help us not suppress the truth of you in our lives. Help us be willing to surrender all to you that we might live for you, that we might be that demonstration of grace to the whole universe. The Father God, we will know the assurance of salvation, the fact that you have cleansed us from our sin and unrighteousness and that we are yours and your children. We know that you love humanity and it is not your desire for any to be lost, but we also know, Lord, that there are many who try to avoid that connection with you. Father God, I just pray that throughout this week you will remind us afresh of the glorious gospel, the fact that you have provided for us despite our repeatedly missing the mark. Lord, you have provided for us so that we might stand before you clean and acceptable in your sight and righteous before you. You have given us a robe of righteousness and a ring of reconciliation. And Father God, you've welcomed us into your family. So Father, just be with us throughout this week, I pray. Amen. Amen.